0: Hello and welcome to the Conflict Skills Podcast. I'm your host, professional mediator, Simon Good. This podcast is designed to help you develop the confidence and strategic tools for dealing with conflict, whether the conflict is connected to work, study, or personal relationships. In today's episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at the topic of assertiveness, how you can be firm and hold on to boundaries, and at the same time, minimise the chances of triggering reactivity, defensiveness, resistance in the person or the organisation, I suppose, that we're dealing with. Now, one of the challenges with assertiveness is that we've all got a different idea of what assertiveness is. Sometimes people tell me when I'm doing a mediation, for example, I was just being assertive, or I need to stand up for myself, or I need to, whatever it is, hold on to my boundaries, or stop them walking all over the top of me. And they think that they're being assertive, At the same time, the other person often describes them as being incredibly aggressive, over-the-top, intimidating, that kind of thing. In a similar way, sometimes people are saying that they're being assertive and feel like they're being firm, but other people around them would describe them as being too passive. They're getting walked over the top of, they're being too accommodating or flexible, and sometimes they might not even realize that, even if they take a step back and reflect, and they might actually see things from that same perspective, that uh, this probably is an opportunity to stand up for myself a little bit more. So the challenge with communication is that it's really in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) The way that communication is received is often to do with the lenses and how the person's feeling and how the other person's conditioned. So we can do our best to be assertive, but at the end of the day, we can't be in control of the other person's interpretation of what we've said. That's a really important distinction to be aware of right from the outset, that all we can really control is what we say and what we do. We can think about our intentions, we can have a goal in mind, but ultimately this is a two-way street, and even if we communicate our message very clearly, the person might misinterpret it, not understand our intentions, they might have a different goal in mind, or even react and go into fight-or-flight mode and do something that doesn't make them happy long term, it's not an outcome that they're hoping for, but they're almost in this unconscious pattern, a loop that they sometimes might even get stuck in themselves. And in some situations, there might not be a whole lot that you can do about that, at least in the moment or in the short term. The other mistake sometimes people make when they think about the topic of assertiveness is that I'll be able to give you the tools to control someone else again, in the same way that we can't control the other person's interpretations of of what we say and do, we also can't control their behavior. So even though we can be firm, hold the line, stand up to ourselves, outline consequences, give an ultimatum in a respectful but effective way, the other person still might not do what we want, which means that we might be left thinking about well, what's the next best option? When my six-year-old's having a meltdown, when I've handled it well, and I don't always handle it well, by the way, I increase the chance of him doing what I want him to do, putting his shoes on for school or whatever it is, going to bed, but ultimately, that's not something that I can fully control. If he's too worked up, too tired, too stressed, whatever it is, he might still have a meltdown and tantrum, and so I might be left just to manage the tantrum, which would be walking away, for example, or I don't know, increasing the level of threats that I'm offering him. Like, if he doesn't stop or at least just brush his teeth, then he's going to lose some iPad time tomorrow or whatever. So I would ideally like him to just calm down and listen to me, but, you know, sometimes he won't. And that's also true when we're dealing with our boss, <laughs> our colleagues at work, customers and clients that are difficult. You can be effective. You can do things the, the right way, so to speak. At least looking back, you think that you've managed it as well as you could have at the time, but it still didn't get to the outcome that you're hoping for. So we need to be really careful as we're thinking about improving in these kinds of areas like assertiveness, not to connect the results with success. Really, it is about our performance. So in the session, in the episode today, I should say, I'll be talking about what you can do and what you can say, not so much to guarantee an outcome from the other person, but increase the chances of at least shifting things in that direction. So... In a situation where we decide to be assertive, the starting point often is to get clear on our goal. If my son's not listening to me, it's time to go to school, and I've asked him six times to put his shoes on, then my goal is getting his shoes on. I also though, before I get to work, don't want to be in a massive battle with a six-year-old. I don't want him to arrive to work stressed. I want to be able to wrap things up quickly, so you know, I want him to put his own shoes on, like it's showing a bit of responsibility, for example, uh, what would you say? Like he's, um, it's his shoes, so he should put them on himself. So that's one goal I have: is that he learns how to do it and looks after himself. At the same time, I need to not be late for work. So in this situation, I could consider things like just going and doing it for him or offering him help. So when you've decided to be assertive, just whatever you do, don't get stuck on short-term goals. Like it's his shoes; he needs to look after it himself if it's going to cause you problems that are more significant, like being late for work, getting really stressed and flustered and fuzzled on a day when I've got an important meeting, for example. Even my relationship with him, I don't want to come across as really unsupportive in a situation where he might be struggling a lot more than I realize. The same thing happens at work. You've decided to be assertive and your goal is to I guess be firm and stand up for yourself, give your boss a piece of your mind, tell this person how annoying they're being. You also have other goals, like you want to go for this promotion in six months, or you're applying for another job anyway, and so this job doesn't really matter. Just thinking about it within the context of everything else that's important to you will prevent you from, I guess, making a mistake that you might regret. The other thing you might need to consider, depending on the situation, is how important is de-escalation? When I have kids, you know, coming in our back gate and I'm worried they're going to let my dog out and she tends to freak out when people come and actually I can hear her barking right now, Um, I'm not thinking about de-escalation. I just yell, shut the gate, guys, shut that gate. Whereas if I've got a kid in my house and they're upset and distressed about something that's happened, maybe my son's been a bit of a jerk and he's not sharing, then I'd be much more likely to de-escalate and be empathetic and listen and calm them down first Before I'm assertive and say, well, look, you need to go and talk to my son about that yourself. So I would really consider how important de-escalation is. And if I do need to de-escalate the person, then I'll do that first. There's no point being assertive, giving ultimatums and threats, explaining the rationale for your decision. If the other person's in fight or flight mode, it's not going to register. They're not going to be able to hear you. My son's having a meltdown. There's no point in me going in and saying, I've given you three warnings, you know, it's your own fault for not doing it quicker. And the same thing happens a lot in couple relationships. Someone decides they need to be assertive, so they stand up for themselves, but the problem is the timing. The other person's in such an escalated and agitated state. That you saying to them, I'm not going to continue this conversation until you calm down, or you're not listening to me, I need you to understand this and this and this. Well, if the other person's so worked up, it might mean that they can't understand what you're saying. Like physically, they've lost the capacity in that moment. So you pushing it and pushing it might mean that you're hitting your head against a bit of a brick wall, or worse, you're you're escalating the situation even further. You might start to get worked up as well. So think about your goals and just consider, is this a situation where I should de-escalate first before I'm assertive? If it's urgent, there's not much time, there's a safety concern or something else, then I probably would need to just go in and be assertive from the word go, shut that gate before my dog gets out, or she might... Bite one of you if you come in. Um, there's situations where you just need to be firm. Put that down, stop that. Don't cross that road. There's a car coming. Even at work, don't do it like that. You need to do it like this. I'm not so concerned about the other person's feeling if it, there's a safety concern, for example, and they're going to, I don't know, drill through a pipe that has gas in it or cut a wire with live electricity or something like that. So we're clear on our goal. We've figured out if we need to be. To do some de-escalation and we would have done that first. The next thing in terms of assertiveness is that we need to think about what's the person's behavior. So I might describe the current state and what they're doing and I try to do that in a neutral way. So I describe the current state, the situation and what they're doing and I'm asking for a change in behavior. It's not going to be effective when we're assertive if we use labels If I say to someone, you're always late for these meetings, or you're not taking this job seriously, or I need more support, or you're not chipping in and pulling your weight, as soon as I put these labels on, you're always late, it tends to invite defensiveness and resistance. No, I'm not, you know, I'm always on time, it's only been a couple of times over the past month. Doing that extreme labelling means, well first we might get in a debate, and second it comes across as criticism which escalates their own fight or flight response. So we don't want to use labels. We don't want to put labels on their intentions. You know, you're not taking this job seriously. We want to describe the behavior. This is the third time this month you've been late for this meeting or you know, I've talked to you about being prepared before we go into these client conversations. This is the second time when you haven't had the facts in front of you, which has meant that when the client asked a difficult question, you weren't able to give them the information without you know, spending a few times doing research on the spot. So I describe the current state. Um, mate, I've just looked in your bedroom and I can see that you haven't packed up yet. This is the third time I've asked you to brush your teeth. I've unpacked the dishwasher for the rest of this week. Tonight I've got some work that I need to do. So we describe the situation without any attribution of blame, which means we often don't focus on their intentions. In fact, one of the tools that we can use when we name the issue is something called softening statements. These are things like, I know you've got a lot on your plate at the moment, or you might not have realized that this is a problem. The reason that these softening statements work is because we're communicating the message of, I know you're not an idiot, and I know you're not a jerk. So I'm not saying you're being selfish, and I'm not saying that you're incompetent. All I'm doing is describing the behavior. So if someone hasn't replied to my email, and I call to follow up, I might say something like, Look, I know on Mondays you're probably under a mountain of emails. Often I get over 100 in my inbox. So I know it can be challenging keeping track of everything. I'm just following up on the email that I sent through on Thursday last week because we need a response from you by close of business today. And I thought rather than sending another email, I'll just give you a quick call. I don't know, maybe there's a problem that might have come up on your end. So I'm normalising potential contextual factors that have contributed. Not saying you're an idiot, not saying you're a jerk is like the subtext here. And at the same time, this is the reason I'm calling. This is what I wanted to talk to you about. So I might say to my son, look, I know, mate, it's so hard to pull yourself away from a good show, and you might be at a really good spot for all I know. I need you to pause it now and go and brush your teeth. I'm not saying you're an idiot, you're not a bad kid, you're not in trouble. This is what I need you to do. So we name the issue neutrally, if possible. We might add in some of those softening statements like, You know, you might not have realized this. I know this is a lot to keep track of. It sounds like you've probably had a pretty chaotic day. I'm Still hoping I can get this from you. Do you think that would be possible? The next thing that we want to do is ask for what we want. And again, the focus has to be on behavior. And in some situations, we want to build in a higher level of accountability or add some parameters. Maybe we need to be more firm. So I might say, I need you to do this by this time. And then the most, I guess, assertive way we could phrase it would be to Clearly outline any consequences. I need you to do this by this time, for this reason maybe. And this is the consequence if it doesn't happen. This is probably where you've asked the person to do something a few times and they haven't done it. And you're needing to ramp up the the pressure or the intensity, so to speak. We need to do this carefully because, again, it can trigger that resistance and defensiveness. Some people get their heels dug in a little bit if they feel like they're being pushed around. And you adding another consequence, they might whether they think it or maybe even say it, are you threatening me? It's often the sort of line of narrative that they come up with. I suppose, in a sense, you are. You're outlining a consequence. But we don't want to be too forceful, too over-the-top with these kinds of factors, at least early on. So for me, I'd usually just ask for something in the first instance. I might describe their behavior and ask for it again. I might then say, look, this is the third time I've asked you for this. It doesn't look like it's been completed yet. And then I might ask a question to encourage accountability. When do you think you can have it done by? And in some situations, it may reach the point where I need to outline a consequence. This is the position that we're in, given the fact that we haven't received those documents from you at this stage. Um, If I don't receive it from you, I'm actually going to need to look for another supplier for that product, because we need to make sure that it doesn't impact on our production lines. We're just outlining the, the reasons why, to some extent, very briefly, but particularly talking about any consequence if the person doesn't do the thing that we want them to do. In some situations, you might be able to use a tool called a mutual obligation contract. This can be more formal or less formal depending on the situation at work. It might be more at home. You're obviously not going to get your six-year-old to be signing documents agreeing to whatever the binding legal contract is that you've come up with. It's basically, this is what I can do for you. In order for me to do that, I need you to do this. If you, then I. Look, if you'll come up and get started cleaning your room, I'll come in and give you a hand. If you can make sure that you get those documents to me by the end of today, then I'll do my best to rush the processing through, which means that we can get you an outcome earlier than expected. If you can do this, this is what I can do for you. It's particularly helpful if you're a natural accommodator or a compromiser, And it means that you can stand up for yourself and get a little bit of what's important for you, as well as keeping the other person happy and finding a short-term solution, even if it means that you fix it for them. So you might say something like, look, I'm happy to help out and cover for you, do it for you. I can fill in the gaps here myself. I just want to be clear, though, that this is the last time that I'll be doing this. Moving forward, I I consider it to be your responsibility. How does that sit with you? So I'm basically saying, I'll come in and help if you can at least do this. It might be that your coming in to help is just doing nothing, giving them a, giving them a little bit more time. Look, I can give you another day to get it back to me. I just want to be clear, though, that that would be the limit. What I need from you, though, in that case, is to send me through a draft where it is at the moment and let me know any problems that might come up first thing tomorrow morning so that we can deal with them, which will mean that there's no hold up. The final tool that you might need to deal with in assertiveness is when the other person is continuing to refuse to do what you want. Now, one of the things that you might need to think about, and a factor I I include in training on negotiation skills actually, is considering power. Like, what can you actually threaten them with? And are you sure that you want to do that? What are the consequences? What are the costs and benefits if you do go down that route? For me at the moment, I'm in a bit of conflict with the person who did our driveway in our new house and the surface is all starting to erode. It just looks terrible. There's big patches that have come up and it's because I think they didn't do a good job sealing it when they installed it. Now, there were contextual factors back then. There was lots of rain happening. It was in the middle of COVID. So I fully appreciate that it's not because they're a jerk or unethical or anything or they don't know what they're doing. It might just be that everything got too hard at that time. Nevertheless, I want them to come back and fix it. The challenge for me is the consumer who's already fully paid the invoice, and it's been a year now, really as I think about what I can do, what power do I have, it's only formal channels from here. I could take it to, in Australia we have something called Department of Fair Trading, where I can lodge a formal complaint. To be honest, I don't really want to do that. It's going to be time-consuming, and I don't want to you know, have to go down the path of getting legal advice, etc., Probably by that stage, I'll just get it replaced myself, even though it's going to cost a couple of thousand dollars. So I could threaten the formal action. I could leave a negative review. (laughs) I could, I don't know what else, threaten to come and knock on their door or call them every day until they fix it. But my options are really limited, which means that I need to be a little bit careful about going in with ultimatums and threats. Because I might find myself in a situation where it backfires. That's what I did. I said, if you don't respond in the week, I'll take your Department of Fair Trading, and they just didn't respond. That was several months ago. Since then, I've decided to give them a call and try to reopen the lines of communication, but that ultimatum made it a lot more difficult. So think carefully about delivering these threats and ultimatums. A lot of the time, they can come off the top of our head. The reason for that is because uncertainty is one of the things that we find very uncomfortable. It's a similar section of our brain that processes physical pain, also finds uncertainty very difficult to deal with. So one of the things, the knee-jerk reactions that people do in fight-or-flight mode is they make a threat in an effort to try and get back control. So don't slip into that, I guess, unconscious pattern of behavior if you think it's not going to be helpful in this situation. So you've decided you do need to give an ultimatum. You've figured out that, yes, it is within the power that you have and ultimately there's no other better course of action to take. The way that we give an ultimatum will significantly impact on the way that it's received. Most people say something like, if you keep talking to me like that, I'm going to hang up this. I'm not going to talk to you anymore about this. I'm going to hang up the phone on you. And, of course, that just seems like a threat. (laughs) If you do that one more time, I'm going to notify HR and... Let them know what a terrible manager you are. I mean, especially when we build in those kinds of negative labels, of of course, it's usually all it takes for things to hit the roof and they get really upset and angry. So if you do this, this is the thing I'm going to do to get back at you. It's the simplest way of giving a thread. It's the common method that most people would use. If I have to ask you to clean up your room again, there'll be no TV for the rest of the year or you won't get any Christmas presents or whatever the other empty thread is that you might come up with in the moment. The better way to do that is to position their behaviour as a choice and to clearly outline the choice of two different options that they have. First, we might say, this is the problem, this is what you're doing that I'm not happy about, this is what you're doing that's not appropriate, and this is the consequence if it doesn't change. Or, this is what I'm asking you to do, this is the behaviour that I want you to consider using instead, And this is the more positive consequence if you do that. So let me give you an example using my six-year-old son. You can probably tell this is pretty frequent conflict that I find myself in at the moment at this stage of life. So I'm saying to my son, look, you need to brush your teeth. It's bedtime, it's too late. You you need to go and do it and then get in bed. So I normally, if I'm not managing myself very well, say, if I need to ask you again, then you're gonna lose all of your TV for tomorrow. He's got like an allocated amount of TV that he's allowed to watch when he comes home from school. First thing, give him a chance to unwind or whatever. And that's a pretty significant threat to him because he does not want to lose TV. The problem is, is that it backfires. He goes into meltdown mode. You can't take my TV, hoodie. Blah, 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 blah. You're the worst dad in the world, whatever. So if I just do it like that, it tends to just come across as I'm pushing him into a corner and then he has a meltdown as a result. This cornered animal reaction almost. The better way to do it is to say to him, look mate, if you don't brush your teeth in the next five minutes, it's going to mean you don't get any TV tomorrow. Or, if you can go and brush your teeth now, you'll still get all of your TV like you normally would. We put the positive option second because it has the most prevalence in the person's memory and attention. And when we do it like that, we're still being very firm, we're still holding on to our boundary 100% as assertive as we were before. If you don't brush your teeth now, you're going to lose your TV. The better way to do it is probably you might lose some TV, but anyway, I'm outlining that's the consequence if you continue to do the wrong thing, so to speak, or if you can go and do the right thing, then you'll still get the full entitlement. You'll still get all of the TV like you normally do. We don't need to have any more of these conversations. You won't need to worry about this impacting your performance record at work. This won't something that we need to deal with and I don't need to notify HR or my line manager about. The positive consequence that you outline might even just be a lack of negative consequences. So at work, you might say something like, "Uh, look, this is the third time that you've come to me to make a decision on something that really you need to just be able to manage on your own. I've been willing to give support, but I just want to be clear with you that moving forward, these will be situations that you'll need to handle yourself. That's why we've employed you. You've got the skills. There's other people around that you can get some support from. I'm not going to be able to continue to do this moving forward. I just want to be clear because if you continue to bring these issues to me, then I might need to consider formal performance management options to give you the support that you need to be able to manage it. But also, it's the kind of situation that we can't allow to continue indefinitely or if you can have a go at managing these kind of situations yourself there might be some additional research involved so and I know at this early stage in your career then these might take a lot more time than it would take for someone like me who's been doing it for 20 years at the same time if you're willing to give it a go and you can find a way to manage these situations more independently then we didn't need to think about performance management stuff anything like that we can just focus on the task at hand and focus our meetings on the kind of training that you might be interested in, for example, how things are going and what we can do to support you, options for improving processes, that kind of thing. But we won't need to get into the fine fine weed level of detail like we have been so far. And, and again, it hasn't been a problem, but it's not something that can continue moving forward. So we can be very firm, and then often the final step is to ask a question. Is that clear? Any any questions? Um, are there any problems with that on your end? Does that sound workable for you? Would you be able to let me know once that's done, just so that I know that it's in hand and you've been able to manage that? Fine. Um, I guess depending on the situation we might decide on potential next steps, but asking a question is often a pretty good option to consider. So the final point to think about in this topic of assertiveness is that it's not just about the words that you say. In terms of body language, what I often suggest is you should sit up straight, shoulders back, chin or head up, I guess at least, chin not down on your neck, not looking at your shoes or shoelaces, and being relatively still. A relaxed kind of posture is fine, like just let your arms sit by your side or sit on your lap, sort of with your hands folded on your lap limit movement. A lot of people, when they get nervous, they tap a pen on the desk or pace back and forth. These are not effective tools at being assertive. Try and be still, sit up straight in a relaxed kind of posture. I often say to people, think about the king in a play, you know, Game of Thrones or something. The leader was often very upright and very still. They commanded this kind of power through their role. You want to almost channel that same kind of internal authority. Even if the other person's more senior than you in an organization, I would still follow those same cues in terms of body language. And then in terms of tone of voice, we don't need to yell, but we need to be heard. So you might speak a little bit louder than if we were purely focused on de-escalation, but not yelling. I wouldn't speak at the volume where someone could say I was yelling at them, or even I think that I've raised my voice. If I've raised my voice, I would need to be really careful to just find that sweet spot before it becomes yelling or shouting. So volume is really important, Soft is usually better, but you might be a little bit firm, especially if you need to get the other person's attention urgently. The tone of voice should be low and reasonably steady. Especially for women, you might need to deliberately lower your voice. That's not something that I'm going to do. I wanted to talk to you about the fact that you've been late, or I'm following up on that email. It doesn't look like I've received a reply yet. I just want to give you a quick call and find out what's going on, and if there might be any issues on your end. So a lower tone of voice, lower volume, and slightly slower speed. Often when I'm being assertive with my son, I slip into aggression just because I'm too quick brush your teeth, I've asked you six times to do this, high tone of voice, high volume and fast speed triggers that fight or flight response, so I would need to be really careful to speak slowly, this is the third time I've asked you to do that, can you please go and brush your teeth now, if you're not able to do it in the next five minutes, then it's going to mean you miss out on your TV tomorrow, if you can go and get it done now, I don't need to ask you again. So for me, because I want to not yell, it also means that with my six-year-old, I need to walk into the same room that he is to talk to him about it. One of the things that happens in our house, because we've got an upstairs and downstairs section, is that we're often yelling at each other from the other section just because we're far away and it's hard to hear each other. But I've noticed that it ramps up the emotional intensity within the house, especially in the mornings. So a little tweak or a little hack I've made is just to walk into the room and be face to face with the person that I'm talking with. And for me, I've actually thought this is a good chance to get my steps up, burn a few more kilojoules in the day, reduce the Oh, sorry, release a little bit of adrenaline that might be building up. But it also means that the other person doesn't feel like they're being yelled at. And I've noticed it tends to really help to de-escalate and keep things calm, even when I'm at the point internally of being incredibly frustrated and kind of reaching the end of my tether. So I hope that some of those ideas around assertiveness has been helpful for you. In the next episode next week, I think I'll talk about something called positive confrontations, Following on from this theme of assertiveness, but more about someone's continuing to do the wrong thing and how you can, I guess, speak to them about it in a way that's likely to be productive. A boss who's micromanaging you, for example, a staff member who's not doing what they're supposed to be doing, someone who's gossiping and bickering behind the scenes, taking too long a lunch break, even sometimes a decision that someone's made and you've got some concerns about it talk about some options for something called positive confrontations, raising those issues and setting up a solution-focused and future-focused type of conversation. If you've got a question or a scenario that you'd like me to deal with in the podcast, you can email it to podcast at simongood.com. And if you'd like some additional resources, show notes for these episodes of the podcast, or you're interested in having me come in and do some training with you, or you're interested in the YouTube channel that I've set up or other things that I'm publishing for free, you can check out my website at simongood.com. S-I-M-O-N-G-O-O-D-E dot com. So goody the E on the end of good. Thank you very much for listening and I hope to see you again in next week's episode of the Conflict Skills Podcast. Bye for now.